Queer Relationships, an IM Clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. I uh, distinctly remember being, I was probably like 17 or so because I could drive. I remember it was late at night. I must have left someone's house, must have been a weekend, and I was driving home a couple houses away from my house, and I'm pulling up at that stop sign at the T intersection, and I was just thinking to myself, what will I do if I have to tell my parents I'm gay? That's a day I never want to have to see come. And I like I look back on that so vividly because it's just like, at that point, I'd already told one of my best friends. I told her when I was about 15. And the words I used was I just knew I wasn't straight, which is usually what I even say now. I mean, I truthfully identify as pansexual, like gender does not matter to me. I am typically more attracted to women, but I also don't experience a lot of strong attraction. So, but where did that even come from? That at 17, I'm sitting here worrying and thinking about having to tell my mom I'm gay. And like just the anxiety it was bringing up and the trepidation and the, like I just like, it's such a vivid memory in my head of just the dark night and no one's on the road, completely isolated, and just like, I'm gonna have to tell my mom this someday. And it's just like, adult me sits back and be like, where did that come from and why? And you know, it's one of those things I, I could probably dig deeper and find out where and why. Sometimes I just think about like what serves me well now and what doesn't, and I don't necessarily need to know. Okay, picture this. I'm sitting at the dinner table with one of my best friends and our dogs are playing around the living room. We've sat down to talk about overcoming homophobia and how it's affected our lives. This episode is so important to me because I got to hear stories about her I've never heard before and I think the opposite. I think I shared stories with her that she's never heard before. This process to me of sharing her stories seems so powerful because it's one of the ways that we can jump over homophobia. It's one of the ways that we can reclaim our beauty to sit down with one of my best friends and say, this is how homophobia affected not only me and my life, but my identity. And to have her sit across the table from me, looking at me with such sincerity and say, Isaac, you should have never believed that. That is the vulnerability that repairs. In today's conversation, we cover a wide array of how homophobia not only affects us and our community, but maybe some helpful tricks as therapists that we've picked up along the way to deconstruct the effects of homophobia in our lives. My best friend in this episode is probably one of the most brilliant people I will ever meet, and I think that you will gain so much insight from her brilliance. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's take a listen. I find this because I kind of live in a queer world, right? Like, I come home to my male partner, I go to work, and there's often a fabulous queer therapist there with queer clients coming in and out of the doors. And it is honestly kind of sometimes weird for me to see straight people kissing. It just, it's so weird to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I totally feel that. And this is like kind of ridiculous that I'm admitting to this, but no shame in my game, right? Um, and sorry if you hear my dog in the background. But um, I uh, <laughs> I am currently addicted to this show. It's called 911 Lone Star. And <laughs> uh-huh, I know we've talked about this. And I'm addicted. And I think part of it is because it's, A, it's on Fox. B, the main, like the main characters feature a bis, like the actors are a gay um, Brazilian man, a bisexual, I 
think he immigrated to the U.S., but uh, he's from New York. Um, okay, wait, why haven't I watched this? Show? I know. I've told you. <laughs> I mean, the, some of the writing is cheesy. It's a Ryan Murphy show, so Glee, that kind of stuff. I, I know. I know. Um, and then one of the other leads is this like beautiful black trans man who is, and they're all firefighters or police officers. So then these like kind of very like cisgender male dominated, like particularly white male dominated world. And they are, the dynamics between them are great. Um, and they're fun. And it seems like the cast all just really enjoys each other. Not that I spent a lot of time on their social, but you know. Um, so anyway, there was an episode <laughs> last night, two nights ago, whatever night it airs. And in it, the, they're called Tarlos. That's the couple name, the ship name, if you will, of the two main characters. Or there's a huge main cast, but like Carlos and TK is called Tarlos. And so Tarlos has this like really epic, beautiful love scene that's also like filled with like a kind of an emergency because the show's just really over the top. Like there's a volcano in Texas and there's a tsunami in LA, like super over the top. But they're like having this epic, beautiful lovemaking scene. And like there's a moment where like uh, Carlos straddles TK in the bed and like Fox is sitting here showing it. And I kid you not, I have rewatched it like I think like nine times because it's like, hell yes, here is my people featured boldly, proudly on Fox, beautifully, like, um, just very tenderly having this amazing makeout. And like, essentially, it's alluding to they're probably going to have sex, but this I won't spoil, but like something happens that disrupts it. But it's just like so normal. And it's just like how much that's just like not featured. I find that like, I gravitate and typically only watch shows at this point that predominantly feature either a good queer love story um, or my parents made out in front of me all the time. So I'm pretty comfortable with straight people kissing, but you know, it's pretty normal in my life. But like when I want to get like retreat into a movie or media, I just thrive and like crave something that looks either like my representation or people in my community. It's so hard to find. And I'll watch the crappiest stuff to find it at this point sometimes. So. I do, I do think that there's, I, I came across this piece of research a long time ago, but it, I'm paraphrasing and I, it's been a long time. So don't hold me to it. If, if I'm wrong, I'll go Google it after yeah, you. Yeah, that. <laughs> but the, the premise of the research article was to say, that the more conservative a person is politically, the more easily disgusted they are. Mm-hmm. Like almost physically, like yeah. a smell, being nauseous, the more easily disgusted they are, the more conservative they tend to be. And I just find that kind of correlation really interesting, specifically this idea that something that is... I don't want to use the word disgusting because I don't want to shame, but something that is awkward or different or just um, uh, surprising to me, like a a straight couple kissing, to find that somehow off-putting would easily make me against it, right? Like, I think we all want to push away the things that are different. Mm -hmm. And I think we could easily find one of the root systems to homophobia in religion of all kinds. But I also think we can find it in the people who experience 
queerness as disgusting, which I think kind of sprawls out the effects of homophobia, where it comes from, how it originates, how it's disseminated, if you will. Mm, yeah. I kind of get on my soapbox a little bit because I think homophobia often originates only from religion, but then I have to kind of counterbalance that because there is this part of the human experience where anything different is seen as bad or dirty mm-hmm. or... Um, I mean, I have I have a cousin who's blind, or when we look at someone and observe someone who has Down syndrome or um, cognitive or mental disability, we look at them and say, oh gosh, I'm glad I'm not them, or I would never want a child like that, or um, look how funny they look. I mean, the, the biases that humans can come up with is so diverse and prevalent unfortunately that i think homosexuality falls into that category oh yeah i mean i was just thinking of gender yeah yeah. well and even just like how even in the queer community we other other people for sure like i think of Brene brown all the time and um just like i've I've had the privilege of hearing her speak and seeing her speak i should say and just like like an image she does this image where she has like her arms in front of her you know in a circle and anyone who's not in that circle all right, we find ways to dehumanize. And I mean, absolutely. So my parents are not Christian. Um, my dad is atheist. My mom's universalist. That he was not raised Christian. And yet I still, even at an early age, had this internalized, you know, homophobia. And again, I think so much of it was how they talked about my family. Um, and I think part of it, there, I think there were other things as well. I mean, some of my closest friends were Christian and how they would talk about things. But I think the biggest part, like going back to the whole, you know, TV and 911 of like, there's no, there's no representation. There's a, there's quite a bit more now. So I'm very thankful for that. But like growing up, you know, in the nineties and the early two thousands, for me, there was nothing in media. And if it was, it was this incredibly bullied or abused or beat up or rejected from family character. And I just remember thinking, I don't want that. For sure. I don't want to be that. No. It's like having a target. I oftentimes with my therapist talked about feeling like I had a, a sticker on my forehead that was invisible to me, but everybody else could see. Yep. And I couldn't, when I was in middle school, for the life of me, I could not figure out what I was doing, how I was walking, what my mannerisms looked like, how I was picking clothes what sports I wasn't playing, like, what was it that let everybody see this massive neon sign on my forehead that I couldn't see? Yeah. When I was in high school, I had this friend, and she's, like, someone I haven't um, uh, seen in in years, you know, and and it's been over a decade since I graduated high school. I mean, I'm coming up closer to 20, which just feels... Time keeps moving. Um, but we were in high school and she had this chant, Ray Ray is so gay gay. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things. And I actually, I, I think about that often. And I actually think there is a piece of this of how she chanted it in such a love and loving and sweet way. that I feel like that was the pinnacle for me where I started to say, like, it can be okay to be gay. 
She didn't know. She was just doing it, I think, truthfully because it rhymed. Sure. We did have a lot of queer folks in our friend group that either were more openly out or, and I, you know, didn't actually talk about crushes. And so I think there, she could have had inklings. I don't know. But I have always looked back on that friend in that moment and just think of like, of that moment being this kind of like opportunity to say like, that label's no longer this stigma because of just how friendly and loving and sweet. Like it was a sing song kinship. You are my friend. For sure. And this was someone, and it was, it, it, she'd sing it all through church camp. Like we'd be at church camp together mm-hmm. and she would just sing it. If she saw me, she'd just sing my name and the chant. And I think that's when it started to be like, this could be okay. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was after the, the last church camp I went to was my senior year after my senior year of high school. So I was 18. Mm-hmm. I just remember that I think for me was when I finally started to say like, this could be okay. You know, mm-hmm. that label is not, it's not a curse word. Mm-hmm. It's not the end of the world. For sure. And mm-hmm. my wife and I actually will talk often of like, what if we'd come out sooner? I think about that every day. Yeah. And I don't know, I'd be interested to hear what you say about, I think about this, but like part of me thinks about, I mean, obviously my journey to where I am today, I think of like, well, if I'd come out sooner, would I have met my wife, whom I love? Probably not, because I would have had a different trajectory, you know, maybe. And I, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily a hopeless romantic that believes in like the one. I think you kind of choose who you love and not in the sense of we choose to be gay, but in the sense of like, love is a choice I make every day. Um, and I choose to stay committed to her and stay in love with her and grow with her and all those things. But obviously there's attraction, all those other things, but I don't know that I think we would have been on this cosmic destined path. And I think if I'd come out earlier, you know, could there have been so much more freedom in other ways or different experiences? Absolutely. Absolutely. It may be more freedom within myself, but there's this piece where it's like, I think my journey was also my journey. So I can't discredit you know um and i think for me coming out was also over a 10 year long process right you know for sure for me too so it's just because i wasn't out to certain people that maybe weren't safe for me to be out to doesn't mean i wasn't out and so i try not to discredit that either um obviously we've had you and i have had lots of fun together before my long before my parents knew i was gay but that didn't you know i was still living I don't, I wouldn't say I was living a closeted lifestyle. I just also happened to live 800 miles away from them. (laughs) Sure. I feel like if I had come out earlier, the one thing that I crave the most is to go through, to know what it feels like to go through elementary school, middle school, high school, college, grad school, without feeling so dirty like I feel like if if I had a safe environment to just be authentic yeah I would have saved myself years of like I'm going to use this word on purpose but like chaotic sleeping around because I wouldn't even call it hooking up because it was just like ravaging like I just I needed someone to want me so that I knew that I was okay but out of this like desperate 
I am so dirty. I need to prove myself otherwise. And I think chaotic drinking as well. But I just I, I want to know what that trajectory would have looked like. What that what my present would look like if I didn't have to walk through so much shame. But then I think, kind of like you, I might not have fallen in love with psychotherapy. I might not have the same mission in life. I might not be so dedicated to who we are as a queer community. Yeah. And when I think and take stock of my life right now, I'm like, I would choose this all again. Yeah. (laughs) I said the same thing to my wife because, like, I just think of if I was out, fully out, I wouldn't have gone to seminary, or at least not the seminary I went to. And I love the knowledge I have of scripture. I, I think I'm probably still I'm one of the few people left in the community of our you know cohort and peers that still believes in probably Judeo Christian tradition. I think there's many people who still believe in and maybe a higher power or an entity, but or a force, but, you know, I do still kind of subscribe to many aspects of Christianity while completely rejecting the mainstream Christian church in the United States, because that is, well, I have a lot of thoughts about that one that cannot be contained in this moment. Um, but there is, you know, I have this richness and depth of knowledge that I got from going to a pretty academically rigorous moderate seminary that taught me to think for myself and really, and I jokingly say often had made me gay um, because it finally made me look and understand that there's no biblical evidence to support being, you know, like that homosexuality is a sin Mm -hmm. and the way we interpret it in modern times, really most interpretations came in the last 50 years, 60 years of how we interpret it. Um, but in my experience, obviously, it was so much different. I do wonder if I had been maybe a little bit more sexually liberated if I'd come out earlier or um, that side of things. But there's, you know, when you're talking about this idea of feeling dirty, all I all I could think about in my head of just like what's going before, you know, like what starts flashing before my eyes. And I imagine for you, maybe something similar of just like just the sheer loneliness Ugh. of just how like that saying where you can be in a crowd of people and still feel completely alone. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what marks a good portion of maybe my most formative 20, you know, early twenties of just darkness in that way. And again, I think it brought me to this point now where I, again, I am a, you know, could be a counselor and I, I do career work predominantly. So it just, really getting to see people through some of the darkest moments of their, their life purpose at work and, and moving forward. I think it's um, really brought to me a deep joy that I have now, but I, I will never forget right before I really fully started authentically living who I was. I, um, I was at the point where I was so, I had been struggling with suicidal ideation for so long that I knew I needed to put myself into, I need to put myself into a psychiatric hold if I was going to, or was not going to be okay. And I just so happened to go to a friend's house and they just took one look at me. You know, I was picking up a textbook of all things and they just looked at me and they said, I, 
you want to come in? Do you want to sit for a while? And they kept me there for probably three or four hours. They were also gay and somewhat closeted and just sat there until I knew there was hope. And, you know, again, I think it was looking at that and just being like, why am I purposefully choosing to be so lonely? And I'm not saying depression or suicide ideation is something we choose. I'm not trying to say that at all. But there's this piece of like, if I, I knew that if I could be more authentically myself, I could live in more freedom. And I obviously also paid a counselor a lot of money and spent five wonderful years in therapy with a phenomenal therapist <laughs> to work through that. That's not something I journeyed through alone. I left my friend's house and immediately called my counselor and got an appointment. <laughs> but it was one of those things where... And I tried to put myself actually into conversion therapy and my counselor was like, uh, <laughs> you crazy. No, you're fine. In fact, at one point he told me, what would it look like if you just went and made out with somebody? I just think I needed to have it normalized. It was okay to be gay and I could be myself and people wouldn't leave me or alienate me or hate me. Yeah, you know, I think there's this a long story, but I'll try and make it short to prove or to like tie my <laughs> story together here. But I remember being, um, I was in college, so it had to have been 2004. And I was in this uh, queer studies class where I had to attend this gay pride march as part of my grade. And so here I am, this closeted Hispanic kid from the Assemblies of God house, <laughs> observing a gay march. And there's this person behind me saying, I'm queer and I'm here. And he sounded so proud. And I remember thinking, like, queer is such a dirty word. Why mm. does this person keep using it to describe yeah. himself oh man i remember that feeling oh. so like people would say that word around me like you can't say that word yes. and so i think of like how we've reclaimed that word right mm -hmm. and within like the last year or so like i find myself reclaiming the idea to piggyback off of what you were just saying like i want to reclaim the idea that damn it i choose daily i chose a long time ago to be gay and not in the sense that I could have been straight, but I chose to be gay, but in the sense that I choose to live in my own happiness. Yeah. I choose to, to go home to Joe and be happy. I choose to identify as a bisexual person and express that. And I, I get to choose being happy. Yeah. And I think reclaiming that, notion that we choose to be queer is a statement of being empowered and beautiful yeah i love that but i wonder for you what steps did you have to take to come to that confidence because this episode is all about the overcoming that actual jumping over the hurdle what yeah. did you do what did you have to say to yourself, embrace? What did you have to deconstruct? Yeah, I think so much of it is, like I was saying earlier, that a pivotal moment where I realized, and it wasn't just one day, but it was um, 
part of it was, it was an entire summer. It was summer 2011. I remember it very distinctly, but I was so lonely and depressed. And I remember in a small group of my um, girlfriend, like my friends who are also girls, <laughs> my romantic partners, um, I was, we were all hanging out and, and chatting. And I remember just at the, I remember breaking down and just saying, I think every day about not being here anymore. And that it'd be so much easier if I was not in this world for everyone else. And just the looks on their faces. Like, what the hell are you saying? It would not be. And I couldn't feel it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it for myself. And ironically, I could believe it for every single one of them, right? But I couldn't believe it for myself. And the end of that summer was when I got to that point where I went to that friend's house and I just knew that the depression had such a serious hold on me. And I unfortunately know the reality of suicide um, in my family. I uh, have had some family members that have attempted. And so thankfully for me, that was, even though that feeling was very intense, it was never an option because I remember how hard it felt when someone else chose that decision to, to, to take their life and how devastating it was for me. And so I was like, I can't do that to anybody else. So I had enough of this kind of logic in my head around that. And, and, uh, I realized in, in, you know, watching my friend's faces going, you know, just a month or so later, going to my friend's house, having him just care and love on me, you know, and, and realize, like, understand that I'm not okay. And like, he wants me to be okay, that he loves me and he sees a reason for me to keep going. And I was about to start my internship as a counselor. And I'm sitting here thinking like, holy shit, what kind of imposter syndrome is this? I'm going to go counsel people while I'm like this. <laughs> like, <laughs> there are some serious red flags here. <laughs> and... So obviously I called and made an appointment for my counselor. And so I, I did a lot of this with the support and affirmation and care of just a wonderful counselor who was actually a swift, a, a cis uh, heterosexual in a committed marriage, white man. I mean, you check every box of privilege and he had it. And he was just also, I think, so healing for me in that. But I think what, how I overcame was just like we're talking about choice I had to make a conscious choice to see within myself the goodness. It's a very hard thing to do. And I'm not sitting here and saying we can flip a switch to end depression or we can flip a switch to get rid of suicidal ideation. I don't want that to be heard here um, because it's not. And sometimes I will even say, I don't know when the shift happened. It was gradual and it was slow. But there was this point that the realization that just like I can believe your life is worth fighting for and living. And just like I can believe my other friends' lives are worth fighting for and living, but so is my life. And I have to choose to fight for it. And to do that means I have to accept these parts of myself and I have to fight for them. I have to believe in and fight for my queer identity and the intersectionality of that in my faith and being female and what that might mean to me. And 
it was not overnight. It was not even, you know, over a week. It was, it took me years in total. You know, I came out to my parents in 2015. So we're talking about a four year long journey. They were the last people to know. Unfortunately, sorry, mom and dad, you'll, if you ever listen to this. Um, and my mom even said, well, don't tell this person. I was like, I told them in 07. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> They've known for a long time. <laughs> um, but there was this piece where trusting the right people. So very much letting, finding who was safe in my life and trusting them. Yes. Working with professionals. So I worked with a counselor. Um working with my supervisor at work new and even today um i just entered back into the journey of counseling again um i've had some losses this year just in terms of family members and i'm going back to counseling and my boss today knows i have a safety with my boss to say that you know that's again a privilege but like that i'm so held safely in so many spaces to journey out in this way so I, I know that that's not true for every person and they don't have that. But that I think was how I overcame and worked through was safe people, supportive mental health professionals, and um, a workspace where I could I could take a day off if I just really wasn't okay. Um, or I could maybe not see clients in a day if I you know needed that. And I think at this internal drive that what does this cost me to not live authentically? And the reality is it was going to cost me my life and it wasn't worth it to me. Right. Sure. In therapy, what do you feel like true to your career counseling, you know, what did you have to do internally? What did you have to grapple with? Yeah. So if you've ever had a conversation with me, you probably know I love cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. So there's this aspect of cognitive behavioral therapy where thought journaling, and if you're not familiar with it, I do recommend. Um, Again, always love counseling with a professional, but you can Google it and look it up on your own. There's some good resources out there. But it really took sitting down and doing some cognitive behavioral therapy within myself. And my counselor was not a CBT therapist. They were a different type of therapy modality called Gestalt, which I actually don't like. Um, <laughs> but it works. It worked. You know, I get, I put myself in counseling with a cis hetero male, white male who used a therapy modality I do not like. I think in every way I was looking forward to fail <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> and he did try to fire me once. He's like, are you going to push through this? Cause this is what it is. And I was like, you cannot fire me. I'm very stubborn to my core. So I think part of it was him trying to fire me. Um, and actually he is, um, he, he moved away. He's an expat. He lives in Latin America. He lives in uh, South America now. And I email him about every other year just to let him know where I'm at in life. Cause as a therapist, I know we don't often hear and how much I just want him to know that I think he was influential in me being where I'm at today. Um, but I think part of it was he can do all this great counseling session, but there is this internal driver within myself. He cannot make me. We have a saying in counseling, you can't work harder than your client. And we say that because at the end of the day, there has to be something internal within yourself. Whether it's a motivation, a spark, um, like a ping pong ball that's like, 
I've hit this side, now I've got to go hit something else. I've got to move in a different direction. And so I actually would sit down and say, so I mentioned the belief of, right, I, my life, it would be easier if I'm not here. And I just had to sit down and say, like, what's true about that? And what's not true about that? And at the end of the day, if I was looking at it objectively, there was more evidence to tell me what was not true about that than what was. And there's so much evidence of what I could bring to people and how I could love people and care for people. And I'm not saying that, like, even now. And my poor wife, I mean, she she loves me deeply and she chooses me every day. But there's times with my wife, I'll be like, am I really even, does it, do I even matter? Like, am I even worth being here? Because our, our significant others can bring up our deepest wounds and pains. And she's got to sit with me in it, you know, because, you know, she loves me and she's supportive. And I've got to do my own work, too. It's not her role to fix me. But I still do that CBD thought journal to today or all the way to, you know, today of just what's true here, what's not true here. And then the most important thing I think in all of this is that you have to replace that thought. So if I think I am useless or I don't provide value, I might not be able to flip that right on its head and say, I am super valuable. I might not feel that, but I could at least feel I was able to provide a friend a babysitter today who needed childcare. I was useful in that moment. Maybe that's my thought for the week. I was able to provide my friend childcare. And it's just taking that one small step. And maybe a couple months later, it's able to sit back and say, I have a friend who told me today how much they valued my friendship. I matter to them. I'm valuable here. I'm useful here. And so it was just this almost like I, just this, I think of like, I picture him like stepping up from a basement and like just taking it one step at a time. And it was again, not an overnight thing. It was a journey and it's still, it's insidious. It will sneak its way back in. And I just have to sit here and back and remember and say like, yeah, I have so much evidence that tells me otherwise. My, um, I, I tell, I actually just recently, I, I teach a grad class and I recently told a student in my grad class this because imposter syndrome is very real for students. I kept a, uh, a folder, a manila envelope in my desk drawer for the first probably five years as a counselor of thank you notes I'd received. And it's no one's responsibility to give me thank you notes, sure, but sure. you know, maybe you get an email or you get a, a note or a letter. And I kept them in those days when I felt like I wasn't useful or I wasn't valuable or I didn't contribute, sure. I'd pull it out and I'd read them. Mm -hmm. And it, I even was reflecting last week, I probably haven't pulled those, those notes out in over six years. I think of them sometimes. But like, it was a multi-year long journey, year long journey before I was able to put those notes away fully. So we're not alone. We're not an island. It's very much the support of people around me and this internalized desire to believe and to listen and to do the work. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. The team and I have been so excited about some of the episodes we've been able to put together that we'll be releasing soon. One of the reasons I love these episodes so much is because they are from people just like us. People thumbing through TikTok or hopping on Grindr and Tinder and exploring the world and bumping into their own insecurities or challenges that keep them from living the love lives and relationships they crave. We would love to hear from you. 
If you have any questions at all, it is your story and your voice that make this show so special. Hop on over to www.iamclinic.org forward slash queer hyphen relation tips. Fill out the Google form if you want to be on the show. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. I'm just like reflecting on my story and I don't know why there's tears welling up. But, mm, yeah. Um, I, I think I remember the first time I called um, Clinton, my therapist, and I said something that I can't remember. I remember. Okay. So picture this, right? I'm a grad student. I'm at a Christian seminary because I'm trying to heal my homosexuality. <laughs> That's what I used to call it. Oh, yeah. Then. All been there. And I go up to this lady who's like the assistant to the department chair. And I say, Sharon, I need a therapist. Who do you recommend? And she flips through this like three ring binder with all these cards. And she says, this one. She pulls out this card for Clint. And I'm standing in the apartment that my boyfriend pays for. The car he bought me is parked outside. He pays for my groceries, all of my utilities, while I'm in grad school. And he's deployed to Iraq. And I'm standing in the lobby of the apartment that he paid for. And I remember being on the phone with Clinton, and I felt like he was my one last hope to being straight. And in so many words, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I I remember saying something like, I want to be the man God wants me to be. I want to be straight. I want to marry a woman. And he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know if I'm the therapist for you. And I was so like thrown off because Sharon, the assistant to the department chair, gave me this card and he was a professor at the seminary and he was supposed to be like this guru for healing me. And I negotiated with him on the phone and I, he pushed back and pushed back and I said, fine, if God is okay with it, I'll be okay with it. I just want to know that God loves me. And he said, okay, I'll see you. And we went on a, like a six year journey of breaking down shame, assessing why I was sleeping with everybody, why I was drinking so chaotically. And I think one of the biggest resources was watching him as this straight cisgender married Christian man who was so beautifully feminine who could see the beauty in me that I couldn't see because I felt so disgusting having someone see me as a beautiful creation was transformative so I think that was one of the thing, one of the things I think another thing for me was working with straight clients and gay clients at the same time because from that seminary education I I was taught that my gay clients were going to have these weird disorders and odd sexual behaviors and they were going to deviant yeah like they were going to bring all of this weird chaos into my office but then I sat with straight people and 
They, they were saying and, and talking about the same things my gig clients were, yep. literally. And I was like, wait a second. I thought they were going to be like almost anatomically different. Like my gig, gig clients were going to come in with a third arm or something. <laughs> nope, we all come with the same chaos. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was healing piece number two that I wasn't any different. I wasn't presenting anything in terms of a diagnosis or a weird pattern or some sort of deviant hypersexuality. Um, but I think one of the biggest things for me, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but so the boyfriend who had kind of like made me feel the most special went away to Iraq for 18 months. And because of my closeted ambivalence, we dated for five years and he was never allowed to call me his boyfriend because I would have been gay at that point. So yeah. he goes to Iraq. He finds another army soldier who's comfortable in his own skin. Uh, and they start dating. And here I am living in this apartment He's never allowed to call me his boyfriend, so he comes home and he says, Isaac, you have to move out. And I pack all of my things in Whole Foods bags because I had, I had to get out so quickly. And so I put all of my things in like 45 Whole Foods bags, put them in the back of my dad's car, and I drive home. And the next day, he says I need the key to the apartment, and that was so confusing. And I, I handed it over, and I didn't know why. And that was on a Saturday. And then on a Sunday, I said, I want to see you. And he said, you can't see me anymore because my boyfriend's here. And so I went away to South Carolina with a friend for about a week and a half. And when I came home and there was no more distractions, I was laying in my room and I was literally making a plan to kill myself. And I would have gone through with it. And that scared me so much. So I... My parents' room was two feet away, so I walk out of my room and in their room, and I'm bawling, and my mom looks petrified, and my dad is pale. Mm -hmm. And I said, if I sit in that room, I'm going to hurt myself, and I need you to hold me. And I think in that moment, my parents, something turned in us because it was no longer like Isaac needs to fight this thing, and he needs to be the strong Christian, and he needs to do the right thing. And I think that was the first time I saw a genuine acceptance. Mm. And my dad was so concerned. The dad who four years earlier said, I'm glad you said you struggle with same-sex attractions. Because otherwise, my response would be different towards you. Uh, but in that moment, it was like he was a different person, almost saying nothing bad can happen to you and I will protect you forever no matter what it is and my mom's desperation was just so I want to say convincing that to try so hard as this good Christian kid mm -hmm. to the point where suicide was my only relief I think changed changed them it changed how they saw me and, and what I was going through. 
So I think that was another big pillar. I think another thing was just embracing the femininity. You yeah. Know, just say like this, this demonstration of personhood is so important for the yeah. world. I took a friend in grad school shopping. She was a straight cisgender girl who wanted to work on her presentation, and I took her <laughs> shopping and decorated her with clothes. And she said in the thank you card, your, your femininity made me feel more like a woman than any other man ever has. And that was so revelatory. I think what I'm trying to articulate here is that, like you, coming out of the closet didn't feel like opening a door and stepping out. It felt like, building a staircase out of a very deep trench mm-hmm. and so to say I came out of the closet is almost a little too easy but to say I dug my way out of a trench I think is more appropriate there's a piece that's just like it's so it's so heartbreaking to me to think that for so many queer people that it does it gets to that point of suicidality or suicide ideation this piece that right like to go in the the bravery it takes to go in to tell your parents pastors and conservative in their own way assemblies of god you know like parents that have many ways have continued to perpetuate this homophobia and you walk in you say i will hurt myself if i stay there and that your parents chose to fight for you mm-hmm. and mirror just how important your life is to them. Mm-hmm. And I think of that even just, that's what I saw in the faces of my friends when I said that something similar. Mm-hmm. And there's this heartbreak that it takes that for so many people. And unfortunately for so many queer people, sometimes the response from their family and friends there is not that. Mm-hmm. We'll do anything to keep you here with us, right? That's something my heart breaks for every day. But there is this piece, and it's actually also from Clinton Nunley. Mm -hmm. I took a class with him in grad school that was so great. That, right, if we believe, well, I believe, and, you know, whoever's out there might also believe in this idea of the Godhead. And it is described essentially as genderless and all-gendered both male and female, all gender aspects. Because being male doesn't mean being just strong and being female doesn't mean just being just soft or emotional. That we can be all parts male and female, that we can be all like to use that femininity to gift that friend to be strong as both parts of male and femaleness within yourself, right? Like we believe in gender as this dichotomy and by we, I should say the global message is gender as a dichotomy, not you and I, (laughs) but don't think either of us believe that. But there's so many points. I remember actually once being told on a date, I, I took a friend in college, a male friend, on um, this sounds ridiculous, but like on a fake date, um, he really he was an international student, and he didn't actually know a lot of the kind of the cultural norms in the U.S. And he was interested in someone else that I did know. Well, it kind of came out through the date that I knew he was interested in this person. 
And all my, my, one of my close guy friends, I think was so desperate for me to date someone so we could double date with him and his partner, his girlfriend. So I went on a fake date. And at some point during the course of the date, he goes, I had made the joke that I was born in the wrong time period or no, I think in the wrong country because I really love soccer or football. Uh, I like rugby. Uh, I'm very pale. If you've met me, I'm, I'm my skin is almost translucent. Um, so I joked that I would have probably been better off if I'd been born in England. And he goes, are you sure you weren't born the wrong gender? Because to like sports is not feminine. To be able to take control on a date is not feminine. And there's so many messages we give it around gender, around sexuality. That's just so harmful. For sure. And people in the queer community, we can perpetuate it amongst ourselves. But there's, I mean, the alternative is that we drive people to feel so shameful or dirty or isolated or lonely to think that suicide is the better option. Mm-hmm. I once had this mom who came in quoting research and she said her son was coming out. She He was like a nine-year-old and she was so worried. And she said, well, gay people are are higher at risk for depression and anxiety and mental health and STDs and AIDS. Yeah, it says way more about you than it does about that gay person. Exactly. That's what I was saying. I had to slow her down and say, this has way more to do with your discomfort, with your homophobia, with your stance and your approach and your understanding than it does to do with who he actually is. What would it look like if you were to embrace him with unconditional love and positive regard and to cherish this beautiful part of who he is? You might actually, to use some clinical research here, dispose him to loving himself, to walking in autonomy, to being self-affirming, to embrace this incredible confidence. And instead of being someone who's perpetuating the statistics of this this pained person how about you liberate him yes and we reverse these numbers i don't use those words but (laughs) (laughs) well it's like there's this thought that so something i think about often is there's that you know like there's memes that go around in different pieces that say like if you if you don't believe this is worth fighting for, clearly you've never had your rights taken away from you. Or you've never had a question whether or not you have the same privileges as every other person. Right. Right? So there's this piece, and I think that's where part of that comes from. But there's so much of me was just like, you think, I shouldn't say you, but people, like, globally, there are people that think, oh, well, if I just talk about this research enough, or if I acknowledge this, or if I put my child in reparative therapy or conversion therapy... Oh. Or if I, that it's going to save my child to be this most beautiful, perfect child. (laughs) It's like, do you understand the alternative in so many of these spaces? Is death of your child? Maybe not physically. I'm not talking initially suicide, but like a death of a part of themselves. Their personality, their brilliance, their creativity, their charisma, their whatever. Their freedom in who they are as a person. Yes. You're not coaching them to believe or be a more, the best part of who they are. Mm -hmm. You're actually putting it to death. 
Yes. Yeah. I often talk about the six phases of coming out because I think they're so real. But we're talking about the sixth one. So real quickly, first one is coming out to yourself. Second one to a friend, which is what research proves we do. Third one is family. Fourth one for some of us is reconciling sexuality and spirituality or gender and spirituality. The fifth one is, I think, a really important phase. And it's not a verbal statement, but it's a physical statement of letting people see you expressing your queerness, Mm -hmm. which is a very courageous move Mm -hmm. to let your parents see you holding hands, sharing affection. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's stage five. But this phase six is all about reclaiming everything that feels dirty or disordered deficient damaged about you and re-experiencing it in this way that says I should not have been taught this was dirty about me but I should have been taught that this was beautiful about me and to reclaim all of those aspects of our personality our expressions our inherent value our, our internalized knowing that I think is a phase of the coming out that we will probably do for the rest of our lives. Yeah. So in, in other words, we're constantly coming out yeah. because we're constantly reclaiming mm-hmm. who we are. Yeah. I, I have been thinking about that's such a good word to use some Christian phrases. Um, but I've been thinking about that even in my relationship with my wife, we just recently started couples counseling and, and it's funny, we tell people we're in couples counseling, people are like, just assume that we're like on the rocks or things are bad. Sure. <clears throat> and I mean, everyone enters their own journey as to why they enter into couples counseling. But so much of what we did is I have a past that has a lot of internalized shame and pain. And certain things she does, she's not even saying any words that hit at that. But my immediate flags go up of, I'm not safe here. Or you think I'm stupid or insert whatever, you know, co- we'll call it cognitive distortion, meaning a non-true belief. Mm-hmm. And I, the writing was on the wall that it was going to cost me my marriage. Mm-hmm. And I did a little bit of personal counseling and the reality, reality was just coming through that I needed to do it with my partner. Sure. And so much, not all of it is from being gay. Part of it is just some challenges of my upbringing and just other things that I've been through my own journey but there is this kind of peace where it is having to reclaim and believe in myself that there are no parts of myself that are less than it's not to say i am perfect i don't believe any human is perfect but i also believe in the inherent goodness in people and that inherently we all have parts that are valuable and worthwhile and contribute and better the people that you interact with and the world around you and the pets you love and the parents that you care for or the chosen family that are in your life. And it has been so healing and growing for us to be in couples counseling together and, you know, do this work now. But so much of it is just this continual choice, the theme of choice of saying, I can choose to believe this thought, you know, that 
my wife used this tone and therefore I am useless or I'm stupid. I can choose to believe that thought. And sometimes it's very easy. But what does it cost me? Sure. It costs me my lo- the love of my life. It costs me a, thought, a sense of self that I have to give up or make meeker or diminish. It costs me an authenticity in my partnership and in my friendships and in the richness in my life. And again, there are going to be, there are days where it's hard to believe and see those things. And there's, those are the days where I have to lean on my partner and say, Hey, I'm not seeing these today. Or I'm just feeling sad and I need to cry. Can you hold me? Just like you did with your parents. I need to be held right now. But that there is a piece where there. And, and you were even saying, you know, that we have to continually come out. And I know that not, this is not initially what you are also meaning, but I do sometimes sit back and think of, you know, straight people don't have to come out. They never have to come out. And so what if I live my life like I didn't have to come out? And my wife and I talk about that often. She'll, she'll, she asked me actually once, she's like, do they teach you in counseling school to call your, your, uh, part your spouse your partner it's like no i think it's just what people do now to be inclusive and it's mostly cis hetero people who i seem to do it although i do have some queer folks in my life who prefer partner sure sure um but it is like we have fought hard for the term wife she is my wife mm-hmm. and if gender doesn't actually fit in the situation or in the time she's my spouse sure and they are my spouse mm-hmm. i mean there is this piece of here's this legal document that we have that binds us together. Now, and for people who choose that marriage is that institution or whatever, there's also still to me, it's like, you're not my business partner. You're not someone I work alongside. You're my significant other. You're my, my... and so I know that's a personal preference to like the word partner, but it it grades at my wife too. She hates it also. And so she was talking about this. I was like, no, you're my wife. That's it. That's a, that title is important to you and it's important to me. And that is meaningful to both of us. And so we talk often of like, what if we just walked into spaces and just like how someone might naturally say like, oh, I got a, I've got an event with my husband later tonight. You know, a cis couple might say, it's like a cis hetero couple. What if we just walked into that same space and just like, oh yeah, my wife's got something going on or my wife's coming to join me for lunch today. And so I'm like, oh, I just, just so you know, uh, uh, I, I'm gay. Uh, <laughs> right. And then, like, when people call me a lesbian, I don't correct it unless I, I know them well and I want to. You know, I don't identify as a lesbian, but, like, that's right. what people see and it's easy for them. And, again, it's a safety piece. I don't need to tell everyone my business. I don't need to come out in every situation. And that's, I think, something that's so nuanced within the queer community because I think there's also people who find so much power in coming out. So I'm not trying to diminish that either. And that is, I think there's just a richness there in that sense that, you know, that is not, there's not a one size fit all for any human. For sure. Let alone the queer community. Right. I like what you're saying here. It reminds me of um, a session I had with Myra and many therapists. But she was a somatic experiencing therapist because I was just so riddled with anxiety after taking over a very large nonprofit. Oh, yep. <laughs> you know this time. <laughs> But I was describing her all of my anxiety. You know, I'm managing this, and that staff member won't do this, and this person is bothering me here, and this, like, like, 
gut-wrenching anxiety, right? And she says, Isaac, you have to remember who you are. Mm. And I looked at her thinking like, I mean, I remember who I am. And I think she saw like the tilted head dog like (laughs) (laughs) And she said, no, Isaac, I think you need to remember who you are. And that stuck with me almost like if I was at one point, um, just one cohesive functioning member that had then been spliced into a thousand different fragments and I needed to put that one member back into place, this remembering of who I was, the confident, the beautiful, the queer, the feminine, the strong, the capable, the masculine. I needed to remember all of those pieces. Mm. And I mean, she was right. I had, I had so lost myself, but I think it's too easy for us in the homophobic environment to, to lose ourselves. Yeah. Because we, we buffer that part, we filter that part out, we lock that down, we shut that down, we hide this, we yeah. act that out in secret, and eventually we become a fragmented, compartmentalized, double life leading kind of person. Yeah. And to remember who we are in broad daylight, that's deep work. Yeah. There's so much truth to that. And I, you know, there's a piece of me that I used to actually describe myself as a chameleon. Right. <laughs> a very damn chameleon. <laughs> you know, I'd be this person for this person. This is what they needed. Sure. I'd be this person for this person because that's what they needed. Right. And, you know, I'd even say there's probably not one person who knows all parts of myself. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until, truthfully, it wasn't until grad school, you know, studying counseling. I was like, oh, maybe that's not the best thing. Mm-hmm. You know, what do it look like to fully integrate those parts of myself? Mm-hmm. But even now in my, you know, mid-30s, I think of like, sometimes I talk to my, my childhood self. Sure. You know, like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's you, like that, especially I think sometimes when something triggering comes up and I don't actually know why, mm-hmm. but I feel something or I react in a certain way. Sometimes I just sit back and I think of like, hey, you know, seven-year-old Ray was really hurt by something that happened. And it's okay. Like, you're safe. You're safe now. You're safe within myself. But I think that, yeah, remembering and reintegrating and also picking and choosing who we truly are, not who we are for our parents or for our religion or for our job or for our partner. I know there might be parts of each of ourselves that's there, but sometimes when we're putting on that facade, when we're being that puppet for those people, we can actually take ownership over what we want and let go of what we don't. Mm-hmm. And I think to realize that if we can put on one hell of a puppet show, if we can find all of that charisma, or uh, how do I want to say this? If all of that performance comes out of just one personality, what happens if that performance, what, what happens if I use that energy as a 
way of expressing who I am rather than forcing my personality to go through a, a fabrication. In, a, in another way, uh, saying the same thing in another way, to say if I can be charisma, charismatic, or funny, what <laughs> happens if I uh, just let that flow out of me rather than conjuring up that part of my personality shape-shifting and fabricating and producing something i think when we embrace when we remember Mm. who we are we're unstoppable yeah Yeah. quite literally yeah we have such a broad sweep on the sexuality spectrum, the gender spectrum, the personality spectrum, the intelligence, emotional intimacy, the like we can sweep across so many. What happens when we just remember who we are? Yeah. You know, I'm sitting in a place where I've had the privilege of knowing you for over a decade and calling you my best friend for, you know, a decade, over a decade, and just thinking like, as you continue to step out and acknowledge and own who you are, but also who you are growing into be like, we're all, I, I had a boss once tell me if we're not growing, like the alternative is that we're stagged in. That's not great either. Right. Dying. Yeah. <laughs> if you ain't growing, you're dying. But you know, the way she phrased, I once asked her, I was like, is adulting literally always this hard? Is it just one challenging thing after another and like one hardship? And she was like, yeah. It is, and that's what where growth comes, and the alternative is not good either. And I just think of like the privilege I've gotten to sit and watch you grow and own and be and and continue to develop. Who like not develop? That's not the right word, but like I feel like author who you are, taking those parts of self and figuring, you know, what do I want to show and what do I want to hold for me and for my partner and my life with Joe. And, um, like it is such a privilege for me to get to bear witness to. And I think of that for each of us. And this is something where I'm like, I think queer people have a leg up because we have to fight for this. And there's so many straight people who it's like, if you just would stop living that facade, or if you could just take the time to figure out who you truly are and what you want to share with others, what you want to keep for yourself what you want to honor in your small community. Like we're, again, we're multifaceted. Sure. And I, yeah, we are unstoppable. It is incredible to witness what we, where we can go and where we are. And I think also recognizing, you know, for, for folks who might be listening is just the reality that again, it's not an overnight journey and, you know, we're in our mid to dare I say late (laughs) thirties, you know, it's one of those things where it's not overnight. It's not alone. I'm a firm believer in so much of what we do is within, within community. And that is again, often maybe our chosen family or phenomenal counselors, um, or maybe it's, uh, a neighbor or a nanny that you might, a babysitter or whatever it might be that we have these people in our lives. But, there is this aspect that if we all truly 
figured out what authenticity meant to us and what living in that, that, that is true vulnerability to be our most authentic selves. Say that again. Yes. Yes. That it is, it is true vulnerability because it is to be our most authentic self is to potentially invite in critique, criticism, pain, about rejection. Who we, rejection, snarkiness, judgment about who we truly are. But it also welcomes love and compassion, wholeness, integration, community, true friendship, true family. And I'd argue that the the risk is worth the reward. And again, I, I want to honor that I say that from a place of privilege. I had supports. I had people in my corner. It is different. But I do think there is a piece if we can all go and be open to seeking that person out. Because to live authentically. And I think I think of this often. Again, it goes back to that idea that I was telling the story about interviewing, right? If that employer rejects you. Think about that employer that welcomes you with open arms that says, you are my kindred spirit. You are the person I want to be with all day long. My chosen family away from my family. When we can live in an authenticity, we can join that fellowship of the people who we don't have to put that mask on for that we don't have to be a certain way for. And sometimes we pick that mask up to go be with family or to be at that church event or to go to a friend's, you know, funeral or wedding or whatever. But when it's choice to put that mask on versus forced, you know, get I'm a firm advocate of, of we have choices here to protect ourselves. But I just think there's so much freedom and love, cliche as it might sound, to live in our true authenticity because the richness and depth of those friendships and relationships are so much more valuable sure. than anything else. I think in a safe environment, vulnerability is one of the most honest mm-hmm. things we can do. Yeah. But also... It's one of the most surefire ways we can create belonging. Mm, mm-hmm. And I don't mean like to a club kind of belonging where I like got the pass and I swipe and I get in, but belonging in the sense like my people. Yeah. Belonging. Yeah. There's this aspect of. Again, I, I bring so much back to what I do day in, day out, which is career counseling, is there's a common point of feedback that I will work with clients that they get where they get told from, you know, they go through all the final stages to the final stage of an interview and they're, they're so excited about this job and they don't get it. And they get feedback from an employer. We just didn't know we really wanted it or we didn't really feel like we got to see you or know you. Even in how we hire, we want to hire people that we feel we can connect to. 
vulnerability, authenticity. So in every way and shape, there's, we're just as humans, we're craving that. And it is, there is that piece where again, that, that belonging, that deepness of connection. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is risk. Yeah. Yes. There is putting it out there, putting on the line. That's the point of the vulnerability piece. But for when it is, when it is said, Hey, I see you. And not only do I see you, but you're my people. That deepness there that comes in is what makes it worth it. The rejection can come. People will see who that authentic, that's that again, the vulnerability to be authentic can be rejected, can be pushed away, can be said, haha, why are you wearing that? Or why are you acting that way? Right? We can be cruel as humans. But again, I would rather be with my people who will let me curse like a sailor and down a box of wine on a camping trip over the course of, you know, three days and like wear, you know, chacos with socks or something. I don't know. I I make some very questionable camping decisions. And just be, just not give a shit about who I am and just love me and give me a fresh pair of socks when they get wet because I'm wearing Chacos in a rainstorm. That's my people. And I'd rather be around that than have to wear, I mean, if you know me well, you know I hate closed-toed shoes, so I'm not going to put on rain shoes to save my life. But you can tell me I have to wear rain shoes while camping because that will keep my feet dry. And I can try to conform to your will. And I'm not going to enjoy my experience, right? right? right, Like That's what it is. Let me be that friend that brings me dry socks or any form of socks while I'm sitting there in flip-flops in a snowstorm. Because every one of my Colorado friends has seen it. Don't sit there and tell me to put on closed-toed shoes. Yeah, lessons learned. Sure, I could find more appropriate footwear to live in a place where it snows. But love me for who I am. And let come alongside me. My choice of shoe wear is not hurting you. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's a, such a beautiful thing about belonging, right? Belonging doesn't say we, we wear the same shoes and we, we have the same dry socks and we believe the same about chacos. Belonging is saying you are welcome because we're different. Yeah. We belong together because we love ourselves so much that we can appreciate the love that you have for yourself. Yeah. Whenever I would... Okay, so let's let's go back to the time when I didn't love myself, right? So I was I was using this narrative that said Isaac you're only lovable if you pass it straight. Isaac you're only lovable if you make a certain amount of money. Your success reaches a certain mm-hmm. tier. Well, and I had all, yeah, I had all of these standards for what made me valuable. So then anybody else who didn't meet those standards was also worthy of criticism. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, if I deserve the criticism because I don't meet the standards, 
so does that person because they clearly don't meet the standards, which was so shaming of me. Shame people, shame people, right? But the moment I began to embrace the idea that I was inherently valuable, so it didn't matter what I made or how successful I was or how small or big my muscles were, because my (laughs) muscles are very small, (laughs) I began to say, Isaac, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you just laugh. Mm. That you just love. That you just show up either smiling or crying. Yeah. And people will see that value in you. And when I could fully embrace that, I could embrace the humanity and the inherent value in other people to say, it is their laughter, it is their tears, it is their pain, it is their joy, mm. it is their brilliance that makes them equal to me and me mm. to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a major piece in overcoming my own internalized homophobia mm-hmm. that exposed me to truly loving my neighbor. I, I literally had to love myself yeah. before I could love other people. I use this analogy a lot in the work I do with clients of a measuring stick. So, because again, career work, there's all, it's like dating, you know, like there's all these ways we're being judged intrinsically for what we have and don't have. So like what you're talking about here, this, I have to, you know, like we can give other people this measuring stick to say, you get to determine how successful I am. Yes. Or how worthy I am right. or lovable, whatever adjective you want to use. You're like, wait, but we give that measuring stick to other, someone else, society, mm-hmm. parents, the church, a partner, a spouse. But when we reclaim that measuring stick and we say, what makes me feel proud? Mm-hmm. What gives me energy? What do I love? What do I love doing? Where have I felt successful? When we reclaim that measuring stick and measure for ourselves, that is how we start moving through and beyond internalized homophobia, you know, self-regulation in ways that are harmful. I mean, there's a goodness in self-regulation that keeps us off from being in our carnal natures. (laughs) But like, we also take things on because we've, sure. we've given someone else our measuring stick and saying, you get to tell me how worthy I am. Right. There's right. so many places where there's literally no right or wrong. Now, obviously we all live by some baseline social norms and mores, right? Like let's not murder people in general. It's a pretty good rule, right? Sure. Although we also still have like spaces for self-defense at the end of the day. We have to figure out by our own measuring stick what is right for us. And you, again, we're not in a void. Use your community of people that are safe that you trust. And it's usually good to bring in some thought, pro- like people that you don't normally always agree with or those people who might be those devil's advocate just to show you a different way of thinking. But it's our measuring stick at the end of the day. Whether we're using meters, yards, 
whatever measurement we want, we can put it on there. That's how we'll measure success. That's how we'll measure what love looks like. What a good partner is to us or a good spouse. In I Am Clinic language, comes from Pia Malady. She's amazing. <laughs> we, would, we would say that when someone else is holding that ruler, it's called other esteeming because it's this idea that says, I no longer have the self-esteem to evaluate if I love me, but I've handed it over to say, if you love me, then I love me. If you're disappointed in me, then I'm disappointed in me. But also, if you're not here to tell me, then I have no idea how I feel about myself. I think another thing about this other esteeming or someone else holding the ruler stick is to say, if you're if you're measuring me in inches or centimeters or meters or yards, I have to figure out how to accommodate and shape shift so that I can mm-hmm. present myself as you know, 24 inches as a, or three centimeters. Like, what do you need out of me? And other esteeming is a very serious problem because it is all, your, I love it how you said this, but it is all determined as to how someone else is appraising us. Right. I think another aspect of this is when we let someone else hold our measuring stick and we conform to that unit of measurement that is the same moment when people start bonding to our facade Mm -hmm. as opposed to bonding to who we are right because they're bonding to now our performance not to who we authentically are and now to use some old language, we are segmented once again. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. I just think of at what cost. Oh. It's hell. It is so high. And then back to where we started, right? Like, the hiding, the trench, the suicidal ideation, the depression, the I'm not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. I um I had to answer this question today for a silly survey at work. What if the world was full of clones of you? <laughs> That'd be very bad. <laughs> As I originally, I started writing, I was like, uh, it'd be very overwhelming and loud. <laughs> and I was like, and also full of love uh-huh. and it'd be fun mm-hmm. and everyone's drink would always be full, mm-hmm. whether it's a Coke <laughs> or a glass of wine. Oh God. You know, it's one of those things that like, if we could all, you know, hold our own measuring sticks, if we could all believe it in the true goodness within ourselves because if we could all love ourselves first if we were living in a world of people who all loved themselves first 
in a way that also held empathy and compassion for others. I'm not talking about narcissism. I'm talking about a true, deep love for ourselves. Because understanding that that love then spurs us forth in the ability to love others. Sure. How rich could that world be? Mm-hmm. For sure. Not give a shit about who you might be sleeping with at the end of the day, or not sleeping with. Mm-hmm. Who you might favor or not favor, want to marry or not marry. could all just step out in I know I'm awesome and you know what so are you like you want to get a beer I don't even drink beer so I don't know that's a good example but like (laughs) you know what if we could just like I'm just thinking like what if we could all just live in a world where we all just truly loved ourselves in a space with empathy and compassion for ourselves and others If you could kind of describe for a young pansexual seventh grader. Mm -hmm. I've been the hardest year of my life, seventh Uh, grade. uh, (laughs) uh, If you could just kind of like reach through this black hole and give them 10 seconds of encouragement as to how they might overcome either transphobia or homophobia, what would you, what would you say? Mm, That's such a good question. I think one of the hardest things for me as a pansexual person that I struggled with was the that no label seemed to fit and that, you know, I have been attracted to people on all spectrums of the, you know, all sides of the gender spectrum and that to not have a label. And then on the other side of it, there's also this idea that like to not be either straight or gay or lesbian felt like that you were just confused there's this like notion that you're confused it's like what we seem to perpetuate and what society seems to perpetuate there's this like i guess an advice i'd give to a seventh grader is you know now that i want to sit here in this cheesy it gets better um because it does it also gets harder at times and it gets weirder and more confusing but there is just a shitstorm when you are in middle school or when you are young or when you're in the throes of discovering this part of yourself of confusion and uncertainty, at least for me, I can't speak for every person, but I think what I think of the advice is that like to take a moment and just take a, you know, whether it's a minute three minutes to take stock of just what you love. And I'm not just meaning like in a sexual way, but like books that you love or movies or 
weather patterns. I, I mean, in seventh grade, and even today, I love rain, and I love reading uh, mystery novels, and I love um, when I get to just have a really good conversation with a friend, and just sitting and like, what is it that you do know about what you love? And I, I'm a firm believer in making it tangible, so writing it out, yeah. listening in a journal. And maybe it's giving that same kind of space to questions. Mm-hmm. Who do I love? Sure. What am I not sure if I like yet or not? Maybe I don't like broccoli. I'm not sure. I want to try it out, right? I didn't know I liked avocados until I was 22 years old. And now I eat them almost daily, right? Like, so it's, I don't want to narrow it into just a space of sexuality because I think that's part of how we might get pigeonholed into a label that doesn't fit us or a gender space that doesn't necessarily fit us. But just giving yourself space to feel the things you love, the touch of another woman, you are a classmate that's of the same gender, the actor who is a trans man, right? Like, give yourself space to acknowledge the different parts of yourself, and then maybe write out your questions, too. Um... That's part of what I think of is just, again, and I like externalizing it so you can look at it. And sometimes you go back at it and laugh <laughs> or say, hey, I know the answer to this now. I hate broccoli as a fact and avocados are terrible, right? Like we can sit there and say, like, I've got answers to things now. And there's a whole other set of questions I have. So, and then I think there's a piece, I guess, with all advice, all advice, I always say, take with that grain of salt um, and ha- figure out how it sits with you. So then the day as you're sitting there, maybe you're experiencing your own internalized homophobia or transphobia or biphobia. Maybe you're, it's a very real experience you're getting from your family or from friends or from a parent or from a sibling or classmate. I'd go back to that measuring stick. Say to you, on your measuring stick, what feels important for you today? Yes. And it, whatever you put down, I'd always, I always like to dig in a little bit more and say, like, is what you put down for you, or is it for that parent, or for that classmate, or pastor? Pastor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would just encourage you to keep drilling in until it's what is for you. I know you don't have to share it with anybody. That measuring stick, can, that list can just be for you. And no one else has to see it unless you want them to. You know, oftentimes, as I'm describing developmental trauma to certain people, it's very confusing because what they lived through didn't necessarily, quote unquote, feel like trauma. Using the term developmental trauma can be very jarring for people because it didn't feel necessarily traumatic even though the effects are traumatic. I like to think of developmental trauma as one little drop of water falling through the roof onto the ceiling. No one would call that traumatic, except for when that drop happens every second for 15 years. Eventually the roof will cave in, the wood will rot, and there will be a massive hole in the stability of the structure. 
that's developmental trauma. Homophobia is very much developmental trauma. It might not feel necessarily traumatic to be called queer one time on the street, but when it happens day after day after day by bullies on the playground or by a loved one, that can add up and create trauma with the effects of trauma. I mention this because it's important for us to not shame ourselves as we experience the effects of homophobia in our lives. People walk into my office and even myself saying, Isaac, why am I hiding? Or why do I apologize? Or why do I drink too much? Isaac, why can't I show up and be authentic in relationships? And we shame ourselves for the effects of homophobia in our personalities, our relationships, our identities, in our world. When we understand the effects of homophobia as developmental trauma, I hope we also gain the compassion to refer to ourselves not as broken people, but as people who need to heal. I talk about this often, probably almost in every episode, but one of the major ways we can overcome the effects of homophobia in our identities is by sharing our story with someone else. The vulnerability of saying, I feel broken in front of someone else who loves us gives them the ability to rewrite our internal narrative. Something from Isaac, you're not broken, you are precious. And when we practice that vulnerability over and over, we not only begin to learn something new about ourselves, but we begin to feel something new about ourselves. And when we feel loved, when we feel confident and precious, we engage relationships and our day-to-day reality from a much different, deeper, more loving place. I am so thankful that I have friends like Ray who will sit across from me and speak truth into my life. You know, this kind of vulnerability and the feedback we get from trustworthy people won't be as potent unless we love them dearly, and unless we know that they love us dearly. This is why attachments are so profound. When we connect with someone who loves us unconditionally, we trust their words so much so that we let those words rewrite our identities. And to one of my best friends on the entire planet, Ray, I love you so much. Thanks for doing this with me. Until next time. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic.